success does not equal bigger and more money necessarily. I think to live a successful life, it's much more about am I living true to my values? Am I able to obviously support my family and the people I care about enough that I can have freedom in the choices that I make to be able to choose what I do with my time in a way that I feel is meaningful? Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to episode 39 of Moments of Clarity. I can honestly say that I did not think that I would make it this far. Moments of Clarity is a podcast that I finally got off the ground in January 2020. I'd always loved podcasts and after what seemed like 10,000 hours of listening to them under my belt, I really felt I had something to offer in the rapidly expanding media space. And if you count episode zero and a couple of bonus episodes, I am very proud to say that I've now released 42 podcasts into the world with many more to come. However, starting the thing did not come easily. I had been thinking about starting a podcast for at least three years. I knew I had something to give, but had no idea what. What could I possibly create that would be interesting to others? Could I even make something that would not only be interesting to others, but be a worthwhile pursuit for me? something stimulating on a psychological, intellectual and personal level. I juggled all sorts of ideas and kept giving up. I did not think I was good enough, or it would take too much time, or the equipment was too expensive, or simply the nagging idea that it would have to be perfect. I also thought maybe a podcast is a little narcissistic. Why should I add to the chorus of too many voices that overstimulate our society as it is? At the same time, what are we as humans if we aren't creating? If anything, consuming without giving back may be our biggest problem of all. So after a miniature mental breakdown in my late 20s and two summers stuck in a wheelchair and then crutches in 2018-19 and 2019-20 with foot operations, I had done enough soul-searching and reflection to figure out what I wanted to do. The world was overloaded by information. Global issues and everyday opinions, whether human or AI, were infiltrating the brains of the masses. I was seeing people with less and less time to deal with more and more stimuli, and it seemed like everyone around me was teetering on the edge of collapse. The media, especially social media, was a cesspool of hate and misinformation, and nobody seemed to be able to talk to each other because the laws of reality seemed to differ incredibly based on which echo chamber you resided in. But after a good while off social media and a summer that I used to reflect and create rather than consume, I realised a couple of things. Firstly, humans aren't that different from each other when you boil us down. We love, we hate, we fear and we yearn. Most of the negatives come from the external and are often things we cannot control. It is through meaningful connections, face-to-face interactions and the art of storytelling that we find the positives. The second realisation was that I only have one life. Why wouldn't I try everything I possibly could? 2020 began with Italian lessons, singing lessons, ukulele, clinical pilates, rehab, a bigger role at work, meditation and writing every day. I decided to stop wishing I did things and to just bloody do them. COVID changed a lot, but I pushed through with many things and I started to let go of many others. Becoming a dad may have something to do with that. Now, this isn't just some ramble about me for the sake of it. The reason I tell you all of this is because whether she knows it or not, the inspiration behind much of my newfound energy and attitude is the wonderful Claire Tonti, who happens to be today's guest. Claire really helped me work through my inner monologue, not only through our previous conversations, but through the podcast she was working on at the time, called Just Make the Thing. I cannot thank her enough, and I'm super excited to have her on the podcast. Claire began her career as a primary school teacher before venturing into the world of podcasting, advertising, and media production. 
She is a writer, singer and producer who thinks that creativity in all its forms should be celebrated and supported. Claire is a mother of two beautiful children and is married to another good friend of mine, James, who just happens to be the very popular YouTube sensation with his channel Mr. Sunday Movies and a pretty good podcaster too with his podcast The Weekly Planet. But enough about him, he will have his turn on Moments of Clarity next week. Claire does not only celebrate and support other creatives, but creates great content in her own right. As mentioned earlier, she had the wonderful podcast Just Make the Thing, but has moved on to some other projects. Claire is the co-host of Suggestible, a review podcast which suggests things and is out each Thursday. Check it out. She also has a newsletter called Tonts, which comes out every Friday. You can follow Claire on Instagram at Claire Tonti, where you can find lots of awesome content and all the links you need to deep dive into her work. I felt renewed after my conversation with Claire, and I hope you get something special out of it too. So without further delay, I bring you Claire Tonti. Claire, welcome to Moments of Clarity. <laughs> Hello, Matt. How are you doing? <laughs> very well. Um, weird being on the other side, hey? It's very weird. I'm so nervous. Normally I'm interviewing, so I feel like very, very strange that I'm having to ask, not ask the questions. I'll have to try and not ask you lots of stuff. <laughs> no. Today, uh, Moments of Clarity, as you know, it's a, a program, a podcast, a journey for me to find out about the lives of people and both personal and professional lives and and how people have worked to align values and actions. And, I mean, that's bandied around a little bit these days about what, you know, it's, it's almost a tagline. But when I first thought of it, it was an idea of how can I move from being, I guess, a hypocrite with saying the world should be a certain way and not necessarily acting in accordance with that uh, all the time. Not that I was bad or doing naughty things all the time, but, uh, you know, just not necessarily going in the direction that I wanted. And that dawned on me a while ago and, you know, you go through your ups and downs and the roller coaster journey of almost changing your foundations, which is hard to do, and then re-entering and, and trying to align yourself a bit better. And I wonder if you've got a, a similar journey that we can unpack today, but maybe to start with, who are you, Claire? Who are you and what do you do for those that don't know you? Oh, wow, that's a, that's a big question. Who am I? I'm a human being. I live in Australia. Um, so my name is Claire Tonti. I was a primary school teacher for a long time um, and then about six years ago I had a baby and went on maternity leave and my husband James was making YouTube videos for a YouTube channel called Mr Sunday Movies and a podcast and I decided to do a bit more kind of behind the scenes helping with that kind of side of the business um, which I started to just really love. I've always really loved creativity and been really fascinated by people who are creative and making things. Yeah so I just started trying to build out our company a bit more and build some of the revenue. James is so good with the creativity stuff and he needed someone to, I guess, monetize his podcast. That's where it all started really because the boys kept saying they were going to, never quite got there. And so I started doing it and it was just kind of fun. It was an adventure because no one at that time in podcasting, it was so new, particularly in Australia, not many people were monetizing it at all anywhere um, the US was sort of the first place that started it and because we're Australian, a lot of the US were kind of a bit confused by us and even though we have audience over there, they couldn't quite work out how we would be able to do US advertising 
in an Australian way. So anyway, so I just started making it up as I went along and we created a company called Planet Broadcasting and I started, after I'd started sort of monetizing James's show, I started talking to a lot of our friends who are comedians and different people in Australia who do podcasts and they kind of came on board and we created a network of shows and then I started making my own podcast, Just Make the Thing, and then I had another baby and here we are, <laughs> kind of working from home and being a parent and trying to run a business at the same time. What made you more excited or proud? Was it the business side of things? Was it your own podcast and the people you were able to meet and interview and talk to? Was it a bit of both? I think part of what made me most proud was just giving something a go because I think I'd always spent my whole life doing the right thing all the time, you know, doing what people expected of me and trying as best I could to do you know, do school and try and do it as well as I could and then do high school, which I really, I found really challenging. But, you know, you do all the things that you're supposed to do. You finish your 12, you go to uni. I love creativity and I love working with kids. So I thought I would do primary teaching. Then I went and got a job as a primary teacher and I loved it, but I just found it so exhausting and I never had any time to do anything of my own. And I've also really, I'm not a, very good at working within a really set structure all the time. I'm not great with admin. I don't like working in that way. And so I found it really hard to be consistent and keeping up with all the paperwork and all that stuff when really what I wanted to be doing was was sitting with kids and helping them create stuff and find out what lights them up and then do that. And often teaching isn't about that anymore. It's about data and about results and um, within quite a narrow sort of framework and it just didn't fit with me very well and I was just I felt constantly I was letting everybody down and I really struggled with that and so I think I'm most proud of being able to create a life for myself and a job for myself that yeah like you were talking about with this show aligns more with my heart and my head and the way that I work in the world and I've been really lucky that I've been able to do that through lots of different circumstances. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think it's the whole thing, just that I get to choose more what I do with my days, which is a real privilege. That journey of changing, I guess, your job and income and purpose and all of that, mm. was that a hard thing to to get your head around to how long was the journey, first of all, of, of leaving primary teaching and mm. and what went into making that choice? So I think I'd started in the last couple of years of teaching really struggling. Like there'd been a lot of things that had happened with different students. The system wasn't working for me in the way that I wanted. I loved, there was some really great staff at the school I worked at and, you know, leadership was great too, but it was just, I think it's an impossible job in lots of ways and a real privilege to do it. But uh, there were some incidents that happened with students and things that, that, I just started to feel like I wasn't giving my best self to the kids and I didn't want to be that teacher. I didn't want to be someone going through the motions and just sort of not really getting to the heart of the kids learning and instead being just super depressed and stressed all the time, you know, and that would that kind of push and pull I was finding really challenging and difficult. And then I think becoming a mother as well changed things for me too, like your priority shift 
Yeah, so I think it started there with not being happy necessarily with just the overall system of education and not feeling like I was being fulfilled creatively either because when you're teaching, it's really hard. You're giving all your creativity to the classroom. You don't have any time for your own stuff. And so that that kind of started at school and then, yeah, becoming a mother, it just kind of it was a natural progression I think for me. Um, it just seemed like I could do something and help first and foremost with what James was creating. So that's where that seed is, it just seeded with me trying to help. And I think one of the things that actually really a realisation I had, and I'm a big, I love Oprah and Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle and all those people that talk about vulnerability and Elizabeth Gilbert with creativity as well. And one of the things I really strongly believe in is purpose. And nailing down what your purpose is in life in a broad way and then a job or the career or the pathway will, I think, become clearer or look different depending on where you are in your life. But the first thing for me was to kind of nail down what is it that I love to do and how can I help and what is my purpose? And I think at that time I nailed down that I love to help people be creative, however that comes, and that's what I loved about teaching And so when I kind of found that and came to that realisation, that was when Planet Broadcasting was kind of born and where I thought, well, I'm helping James, my partner, and Nick Mason, who's co-host, to be creative. And and I think I've done that through my relationship with James in general. Like We both talk a lot about creativity. He was someone that really struggled with his creativity early on for a long time really and was trying to make stuff and then couldn't and really struggled in that space. And so we would have a lot of conversations around that. And so I loved helping him with that. So when I realised that I started doing that more, I guess, with other people in around us and the comedians and writers and people that I spoke to and just friends of mine too, like having these kind of conversations. I love having these conversations with people, um, even with my family members and and those kind of things that they write really light me up because I strongly believe that human beings are designed to be creative and whatever that looks like, whether that's making cakes and cooking or whether it's painting a house or whether it is writing or music or any form of artwork, I think that we're happiest when we're doing that and in that constant headspace, even though it can be challenging at times. And I think when we're not making anything, when we're just doing passive stuff like watching a lot of Netflix, which I also love to do, I think sometimes that can really lead to inertia and depression and so for me anyway getting out of myself and helping others to be creative was the purpose that I found so I think that's where it all started if that answers your question. Yeah it definitely does and I think it's amazing to be able to find your purpose. I look at yeah my leadership journey I guess in schools they always ask you to talk about your purpose and that purpose and your passion and then I guess your talents your gifts that you you can offer and you've been able to have a purpose that I guess aligns with your passion as mm-hmm. well as your your gifts and talents too. And that shows through your, your business and then your, your own work that you've been able to produce too. You produced a podcast, Just Make the Thing, that talked to creatives and people that have just made the thing because it took you so long to do so. <laughs> and that's how, yeah, you've described it. So what was your favourite moment with that podcast and... I loved it. Is, is it is it is it coming back at some point? 
<laughs> yeah, I, it's so funny, isn't it? Because I, that's the thing. Uh, thank you so much because I really, I do, I did love making it, but I also find really making something of my own like that really hard. <laughs> and I just often think that it's not good enough. And so I, I just really struggle creatively with my own stuff. I think maybe that's why I found helping other people with their creative things a lot easier and a lot easier to articulate as my purpose because then I don't have to actually make anything of my own. And so I guess that was kind of the journey that I went on. I first thought, well, my purpose is just to help other people be creative and then I realised that, no, also I have this creative sort of thing that I wrestle with all the time in my head and I need to start actually stepping up and being brave with my own self and saying, well, you're telling all these other people and counselling them through getting stuff into the world and, you know, embracing their creativity, but you're not doing it for yourself. And so Just Make the Thing was born from that, from that struggle. And that's a line from Ira Glass who makes This American Life such a great podcast and I really respect him a lot. And it's a longer quote that um, Just Make the Thing where he really, I'll sort of summarise it and butcher his words, but it's really about understanding that to make something good takes a really long time and that your taste is might be killer, which is why you decided to make something in the first place, but your ability doesn't match it yet because your ability takes a long time to develop and you can't just immediately be good at something. It's going to take you a long, long time. And he kind of says he took more longer than most to actually end up making something that was so successful as this American life and that you really just have to just make the thing. And just keep making the thing over and over and over and over and over, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours until you get to something that you're really, really happy with. Um, So that's where Just Make the Thing happened and having those conversations with creatives I just, I really loved. And talking about failure and self-doubt and the inner critic, I loved it. So it should, I should do some more episodes. I definitely should. I think I felt like I'd done an arc with that show And I wanted to do something new Um, rather than just talk about the creative process. I then wanted to take it one step further and actually, you know, make something that was in of itself a thing. But I also, I think I also maybe got pregnant towards the end of recording. I was, I got pregnant in the last couple of episodes and I just really struggled with morning sickness and all of those kinds of things. So I just, I felt like at that time I didn't have enough time to give to it. Well, then on creativity, what is creativity then? Does it mean music, art? Can it be anything? Because when I picture creativity, I picture something that is not me. Um, (laughs) I don't draw well. Um, You know, I guess I write and and that's creating, but there's, there's... and, and I'll create content by talking to people. Well, this is a <laughs> podcast is, is creating yeah. something. And you, know? you inspired that actually, Aww, you and James, both of so you. so lovely. Um, so thank you for that. It oh, was, you're welcome. Yeah, no, I, it was just the encouragement but also the fact that just make the thing. It's like, ah, oh, I don't have to be perfect instantly. I mean, if you listen to something for – I was listening to podcasts for a long time and loving podcasts and so many, the hours of listening to so many different ones, I guess you have to – take some of that in it it came through to me in that regard and then it was just a matter of doing it and I've sort of taken a leaf out of that with lots of things you know do you want to give blood well give blood then I mean you can't just say you want to do it unless there's a reason you can't 
And there was a reason actually. Um, when I went to do it, I had had foot surgery, and they said come back in six months. I was like, ah, oh, rejected again. <laughs> I tried to do the thing, and I got rejected, <laughs> which is all part of it too, isn't that's it? Right, that's right. <laughs> so, it's always hurdles. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there are hurdles, and you just got to keep going. And yeah. I guess I'm in that space right now with the part of my life which goes back to education. I know we're flip flopping and jumping around. I want to get to your creation right now, which is suggestible, and mm. and some of the other work that you've got in the in the making. And we will get there. But while education is on my mind and was clearly on yours, as a teacher right now, it's hard to, I guess, want to reveal some of the inner workings of a teacher in a, not a negative way because there's so many positives. But I guess you have this opportunity now to go – because I look at you and you were a, a fantastic teacher. I know that not only from seeing, you know, snippets from myself and the personality you have, but the, the things that I was able to see – while you were at work through James and, and other reasons, you had a connection. You you were bright, bubbly and creative and classrooms, you know, bright and you were in a leadership spot and you had things going. Why is it so hard for the education system to keep great teachers and keep great teachers being great and happy? That's my first question. I'll preface it with a little belief of mine, which is that teachers are now required not only admin, but just to do 1,300 jobs from social work, psychologist, educator of rote learning, you know, for, you know, comparing our results to China and Singapore and Japan and places in our maths and our literacy. But then we've got to be open and inquirers and creative and, and you know, critical thinkers while trying to balance that, while trying to build relationships, while trying to understand the trauma in kids and, and the problems going on at home. And, and also just have a life. Yeah, and then, well, all of all of that and then for them to have a life and you to have a life and somehow yeah. just be real and authentic and all of that piles up to this, you're never good enough as a teacher. No matter how good you are, you're never good enough. And then not at my school necessarily but just I talk to lots of teachers all around Melbourne and, and Victoria and, and beyond and everyone st- when they start – being open and vulnerable, all believe in the same thing. There's such passion there. There's an understanding of what real great education is, but the the habits that you fall back into, which I spoke to Justin Coulson recently about that, you fall back into your old habits when under pressure. And somehow we all end up being that strict teacher that's rubbing your head, against, banging your head against the wall, wishing that you could get everything done and you fail at least internally and, you know, by your own measure to reach the kids and to make society better by creating a great new generation of thinkers. Mm. And I don't know if that aligns with something you felt, but it's what I'm feeling sometimes that I, it's the most important job on earth which we're unable to do, right, because of the boundaries and, and things around it. Yeah. So, yeah, what, what are your thoughts? Oh, that's such a big question, Matt, and I, it's nice to hear in some ways some of the things that I think said back, you know, that you're talking about. And I'm sorry that as well to teachers out there because it is an impossible job and I just respect you so much as a teacher and so many educators. I think you're just all doing such incredible work and it's really important work right at the coalface helping to make young people's lives better. I just think, gosh, there's not much more that's more important than that, I think. To answer your question, I think for me one of the biggest frustrations was A, we're not superheroes and the system kind of requires us to be, but B, I don't think that our university education and then the system is set up for teachers to succeed. 
I actually don't. I think I agree with you. So many of my friends I went to uni with are no longer teaching, but they're doing other really cool things, you know, like working in the resilience project or running their own businesses because they just felt like teaching was too much to be there for that long. I think the pay is not good enough as well for what they do in lots of ways. But I think the biggest thing for me, I've been reflecting on it recently, having been out for six years now, I think that there's a major problem with the Australian curriculum. I think that it's overcrowded. I think it's wishy-washy. I don't think it's specific enough and it's not sequential. So when I've had friends who've, and every year we seem to do this when I was working in the Catholic system, Every term we would look at the curriculum and we would all sit around a table with butcher's paper and a bloody marker, which I, if I have to see another piece of butcher's paper, I'll bloody set it alight, I tell you what. You did that last week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah correct. Such bullshit. Excuse me. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Swear as okay, much as so this like. is what really bugs me. I should not, as a teacher, have to look at my curriculum and try and figure out what it's telling me. I should be able to go, it's Monday morning, I'm teaching grade one, and we're doing maths and it's week two. What is it that I taught last week? What content do I need to teach them today? And it should be in my textbook clearly and sequentially. Now, if my kids aren't up to that point, then I go back a week. If my kids are beyond that and I've got kids, as we know, from a diverse range of abilities in all different subject matters, I'll go forward to grade two, grade three curriculum. But I shouldn't have to be deciphering it. What I should be doing is concentrating on making lessons that get that content to the kids really clearly in a really fun way that caters for their different learning styles. Some kids are auditory, some kids love to move, some kids, I don't know, love to draw or love to write it out and we all have those different learning styles. But I think it starts fundamentally with that, here we are again, looking at mathematics at level two and trying to work out exactly what it's asking me to teach. Because then what happens is that every school in, in, in every part of Victoria and probably Australia-wide, though I think the WA system is better, is a bit more specific, every teacher in every school is doing the same thing. How, much, how many weighted hours is that? And it means that kids, and then if you've got a different cohort of teachers the next year, kids are coming through with massive gaps in their knowledge because sometimes they won't have just picked it up in class, which obviously happens. But sometimes the content's actually not being taught in a very clear, logical, sequential way. And that, to me, was at the heart of my frustration because I felt like I didn't really know exactly what I should be teaching. It wasn't clear to me and it didn't make sense. And then it didn't make sense to the kids. And I couldn't go and just study a textbook for my grade five, six class where I was really across the maths curriculum or the English grammar curriculum, for instance. It meant that I was putting so much energy into A, deciphering this wishy-washy, you know, curriculum that actually does have gaps and misses things and repeats things because I know this because colleagues of mine have had to try and decipher it, as have I, and there'll be things in grade four that weren't mentioned in grade three or vice versa, which I think is so frustrating. So I think part of it starts there. The other answer to your question, I think, is that, A, yeah, we're not superheroes and we can't be expected to deliver a really engaging curriculum, try and figure out what that curriculum is while also being a social worker, a counsellor, a nurse, an expert in special needs, an expert in different kids' learning styles, in different abilities in terms of auditory processing. Like the list is endless 
And I think teachers tend to be, this is generalisation, quite empathetic people who are really hard on themselves anyway. And so when you have that as a kind of perfect storm, when you've got people who are very empathetic, who are givers, who more than likely are women, because that's still the case mostly, and women tend to very big generalisation for social reasons and maybe also because of our biology, that's a whole other conversation, tend to feel like we need to be people pleasers and givers. We give too much of ourselves. There aren't clear boundaries for teachers about what's expected of us. If you are a good teacher, instead of being rewarded monetarily, you tend to be rewarded with leadership for not much extra money and a shitload of extra work. So you're overworked, you're underpaid, you're underappreciated, Parents are really tough on you because they're struggling to meet the needs of their kids as well. There's a decline sometimes in the expectation on parents versus teachers and what a school can feasibly do for your child and it really needs to be a partnership. And sometimes some parents, I'm a parent myself, I know how bloody hard it is, but some parents don't see it as a partnership. They see it as a, it's your job to teach my child everything. Here you go. I'll see you when they come home. I could talk about this forever. I could get I get quite angry because then then what also really frustrates me is then I see in the media when people say things like, oh well the teachers just aren't up to scratch mm. or we need better, you know, there aren't the teachers aren't working hard enough. And every time there's a social problem, I know what we need to do, a program for schools. And it's like, well, there's only so many hours in a day. And really, if we're honest, there's probably only three or four hours where the kids are really going to get effective learning out. And then, you know, everyone knows after lunch we all like to be a bit snoozy and that's really hard. Like adults wouldn't be expected after lunch to be taking in their best learning either. Yeah, and I just think school is not built for all kids. I think it's built for some kids who are good at sitting still and taking things in and writing down and hearing things and then answering questions with their hand up. But as we know, human beings aren't cookie-cutted and they're all different and come in all different shapes and sizes and different abilities. So I just think overall, if you're a teacher, I love you and I'm so sorry if you're finding it challenging, but of course you are because it's an incredibly difficult job and I think you're all wonderful if there's any teachers listening. (laughs) Yeah, rant over. Sorry. I loved it. No, it was... um brilliantly said and, and summed up and you've obviously thought about it and then still have contact with people in the in the world of teaching um, or that have been. I, yeah, just echo those thoughts. Yeah, it, it really is difficult and often the solution is to throw more money. You know, there's this big pay rise Victoria's going to have but the pay rise in itself or even a reduction in class size cannot help alone. Mm. It needs to be the system and society too because you've got kids coming into these classrooms that would work in a lab brilliantly, you know, if you try yeah. this, this and this and use this book and it would be perfect. But, you know, you've got a student that has watched something horrible happen at home last night or this is happening in their lives, like a, a death and, you know, they're grieving or trauma from the with their background, where they were born and, and what they've seen, what they have to deal with, bullying, mm. um, maybe just didn't eat enough last night or, you know, feel yeah. sick or whatever it might be and... And all of that comes up and then we live in this society which is slowly decaying, at least it seems that way. We're very lucky here in Melbourne and and in a fairly wealthy Australian white context with, you know, whatever it might be. But from education, do you also notice that maybe society 
while it's failing has maybe put too much emphasis on education and schools to fix it or on social work or something like is there some another area in life that sort of links to the problems with education that are societal that you sometimes try to connect the dots on probably there's probably thousands but <laughs> you know is there something that ah, you can just pinpoint that look that's a really big question part of it i think is a lack of empathy to me i think when it comes back to it from a governmental perspective i think obviously in australia we are absolutely privileged and wealthy and absolutely overall so lucky as a country. I mean, you only have to look at what's happening with COVID in other places um, to really just feel so much pride in a lot of ways in Australia and, and what has been achieved here and the circumstances that we're living in, obviously, are very wealthy. But I still think that there's just such a growing distance between the wealthy and those who are not so and a lack of understanding, I think, about particularly from the over from the top, I feel in, in political circles, in our leadership positions, they generally tend to still be old white men, really, um, straight white men at that. And then I think because of that, and they've usually come through a, a huge, enormous amount of privilege, that there's a lack of ability and emp- of empathy to see people from different perspectives and how they are living and what their life is like. I mean, you only have to look at what's happening with women at the moment and what Brittany Higgins has come out to talk about within the culture of um, sexual abuse and, you know, sexual misconduct within Parliament and the way that they were kind of behaving and still are behaving in that building and the way women are treated. Um, I think even that extends towards the attitudes towards women from a social perspective too. I think that that broadens out into minority groups, people from migrant backgrounds, from refugee backgrounds, and I think that lack of empathy and kindness and the idea of reaching out to others and really trying to walk in their shoes is lacking. I think this idea that the coalition government in our country have that, you know, you just need to get a job and it's as simple as that, that there's an idea that we all start a race from the exact same position and if you work hard enough, you'll get ahead Well, we know as teachers, and we see that in our classrooms, but we also see that in a broader social context, the race isn't started at the same point. Mm. If you're a white privileged bloke, really, who's grown up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and gone to Scotch, your race does not start at the same position as a child who, say, lives in Columbaroo in WA, whose parents don't speak a lot of English and they have not a single textbook in their classroom let alone a high school in your community. So you have to leave your community to even get to high school, which in itself is a huge thing to leave your home and your family and everything you know to go somewhere else, to then even get to university. And so I just think we need to be able to have more empathetic leaders. I mean, you only have to look at Jacinda Ardern and what's happening in New Zealand and her COVID response and just her kind of policies. And obviously, I have to preface this by saying I clearly am left wing <laughs> and have my own, you know, framework of what I th- how I think society functions, but I also can see very clearly that we need a new type of leadership which is one led with empathy and vulnerability and kindness because that's actually strength and valuing because I think the other part of it too and I think this extends into the refugee crisis as well 
so often the people that come from different backgrounds and have, you know, stories to tell of trauma also have enormous gifts to share and women especially too and women of colour coming into positions of leadership and it's been proven there have been studies that have been done to show this like the Gina Davis Institute is doing incredible um, research into TV, film and media at the moment and also into women in positions of leadership and how when women are in leadership, often they bring those skills of empathy and kindness and kind of a sensibility that does actually improve organisations, particularly when you have gender parity. So when you've got a 50-50 split of men and women in in an institution, it just generally tends to make more money and function better. And I think that more that we can do that, the more that we can bring men into the conversation around childcare so that, like, for instance, our federal budget's just come out and and the funding for childcare is seen as a women's issue when really it should be a parenting issue and a family issue um, because once you bring more women into a team, you also bring a different perspective. Same with people from minorities. You then get people who reflect our society in positions of power who then can make policy and legislation that really does make an impact. And I think when I worked in Indigenous communities, I was a teacher for a year up in Columbury, community I talked about, um, that was one of the themes that kept coming through from our Indigenous Australians in that particular community that what they wanted more than anything in that community was to be listened to. And I think it was something that I heard reverberated through other colleagues who worked in other communities like that too, that it just makes it so simple. You can't just make up the solutions for people if you haven't listened to what they need first. And I think often the government does that. They make cookie cutter solutions, push all this money into a community without actually asking them first what it is they need. Anyway, I don't know how I got to that point, but, uh, you know, I yeah. It's a values thing in a way too that we or our society often pushes our values to others that like what you mentioned with, you know, you go to primary school in a certain setting, then you've got to leave to go to boarding school, you know, mm-hmm. to Perth or Halls Creek or wherever it might be that you have to travel to somewhere else away from your community, your family, your the things that you've grown up and loved and whatever. You've got to leave that to go to high school, which you may not even want or need to, to thrive in, in your society and setting. But we've almost forced that as the only way to thrive in the setting. I was watching something recently where they were talking about how the meritocracy that we've created is not a meritocracy at all. Merit only works. It's, it's, a, it's a very specified merit. You need to go to university and do really well to get a high-paying job in this new digital landscape or this new, you know, the corporate landscape. And if you don't, you're left behind. But it's sort of your fault because you didn't go to uni or you didn't do this, you didn't do that. But have we put the steps to get to university? And why haven't we created a pathway that is just as valued and valuable that doesn't require university, that requires, you know, people used to be proud of their manufacturing business or their home, being at home and being a great parent, you know, a childcare worker, a a nurse. Why do we need monetary value? You, You have to make the big profits in this new world to create value in this economy through really difficult degrees and long, long stretches of, you know, really isolated, focused knowledge and ignore everything else. And we've done that. We've, we've done that 
in our own little bubble of what we see as successful, which is urban, high-rise buildings, lots of glass and concrete and that as being success. And if you can't reach it, well, we'll, we'll try and give you some money to reach that mm. rather than changing what success looks like. Or maybe we can learn from what well, we really should be learning from Indigenous communities because 200 plus years of, of our story have made, what, 50% of workable land now arid and dry and destroyed mm. what we've done to our river systems you know our extinction rate all of that you know we can go into that as well <laughs> but we've done that in such a short time when 50 60 70 thousand years of history made it thrive and the custodianship rather than the it being a consumable i don't mm. know how we just keep going along this pathway and keep saying oh that's the right story it must yeah. be working because I totally agree. I think you said something really interesting then too just about how bigger means better, like, you know, more is better. So, you know, like the more we can consume, the more money we can make, the more urban we can make the setting, the more powerful we can be. And um, you were talking about success and how we have to change what success looks like. And I think for James and I in a small way in our business and in the way we're trying to operate, success doesn't have to look like bigger. It doesn't have to be more money, bigger, 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 more people, more buildings, more X, Y, Z. Like, I mean, I was speaking to someone the other day who asked me very, you know, directly why it was that we hadn't taken on funding. Why hadn't we kind of, you know, done that whole startup thing where you take on investors and then you try and, you know, build it and build all this extra growth and extend out what we've done. And in fact, this this year in the last few months, I've reduced our network just to shows we make ourselves and, and gone backwards in that rather than forwards. But it's because I really think that success does not equal bigger and more money necessarily. I think to live a successful life, it's much more about am I living true to my values? Am I able to obviously support my family and the people I care about enough that I can have freedom in the choices that I make to be able to choose what I do with my time in a way that I feel is meaningful? And beyond that, am I being in connection with others and with the land that I walk on? Which I know sounds like a really, I don't know, just a real priv- privileged thing to say to be able to have that kind of ability to choose. But I do think to me that's what success looks like. If you're able to spend your days in a way that you feel is fulfilling and purposeful, that also allows you to support your family and the people you care about, at the end of the day, I think that's much more important than whether you've got the biggest stuff, you know, and the most money and the biggest companies. And I think that is a shift that is so necessary for our planet, right, at the end of the day. I was speaking to a writer and musician who I love called Lucy Peach a while ago about women's cycles. She does a lot of stuff around period power and that kind of thing to do with she's a sex educator as well and hormones. I I swear this is getting connected. I know it sounds like a funny thing to bring up, but we were kind of reflecting that women's bodies tend to, in the way that our hormone cycles work, reflect the seasons, right? So we're cyclical creatures generally and the planet that we're walking on is cyclical, right? We have seasons, you know, winter, summer, spring and things move in that way and I think sometimes in our modern way of living, in this westernised way of living, 
it's not, it doesn't have a lot of depth sometimes. It's very linear. It's just like how much more can I get and how much bigger can we make it? But that's, that is like a, a false goal in the end because at the end of the day what if we'll end up just consuming our planet and the whole thing will fall apart because you can never just keep getting more and more and more if that's your benchmark for success. And I feel like in the same, I don't know if this is making any sense, but the way that the world seems to actually flourish and work, and if you're a gardener then you would know this too, that it's about allowing the soil at times to rest and replenish and putting things into the soil, letting that compost and letting those things break down to then rebuild and regrow and then you get those fruits of your labour or whatever it is that you've got, you're picking your olives and your tomatoes, but then those plants die again and they go back into the soil and they take time to rest and then they go again, you know. And if if we don't have that mindset that we need to give ourselves also time to rest, time to absorb things, to let things die, to move things on and then to regrow and we think about it in that cyclical way, it's the same with the resources that we have in our own lives and in the planet. And I can get just as much caught up in consumerism as the next person. I love, I mean, mate, I love a bit of shopping, don't get me wrong, but I feel like sometimes there's a part of me that is a little bit dead inside when I'm just like buying that next thing and it gives you that hit of joy. It's like your phone, it's the same thing. What can we get? What can we get? We get that hit, but then you have to keep getting something. That's why I do think that creativity is also plays a part in all of this because we've lost a lot of those skills, you know, where we ship off so much of our manufacturing to China so we can just buy more stuff rather than having artistry in the you know communities that we live in. And I feel like there is a movement of that, you know, slow food and people starting to get back to making things with their hands. And I'm really hopeful that that's where we can move to because I think that brings us like making stuff with our hands and gardening and cooking and doing things ourselves rather than shipping off all of our tasks to other people, um, even though it's convenient so that we can make more money and have more time to watch Netflix and do all the other things we need to do. You know, some of those are life hacks and that's great, but I think there's something lost in that repetitive motion of stuff that I think is causing levels of anxiety and depression and kind of this furious pace of life that we all have to keep up with each other and have the next best thing. I hear this from you, which I love, and it it always, it's a moment of clarity for me every time someone does this, which is we talk about ideas. We talk about everything that's failing in India with COVID or, you know, with the government. The podcast and the reason I'm talking to people like yourself but lots of others too is what are we personally doing? And and you've mentioned that idea of creativity and artistry and and slowing down and, and changing what success looks like on a personal level. And that's where it has to begin because empathy as the solution to a lot of our problems is a personal thing mm. and it needs to be with every person before we can change society. You know, if three people with lots of empathy walk into a room of people that are trying to manipulate the stock markets and whatever, they're going to have nothing. It's like bad luck, mate. Here's five bucks. That's my empathy done. And see you later. <laughs> you know, like that, that doesn't work. So we need the personal renaissance in a way 
a personal change because we aren't happy and we see the unhappiness grow in societies that are supposed to be wealthy and healthy. And it's not that maybe we'd be wrong. If we saw that everyone in Australia and the US and the UK were the happiest people on earth, (laughs) that there was no opioid epidemic and suicide rates weren't skyrocketing and there wasn't this children, you know, being the most mentally unwell ever, you know, then we'd we'd be wrong. But we're seeing this in every external measure that happiness is declining, self-worth's declining, self-esteem's declining, you know, on, a, on an overall sense. So what's going wrong? And it is that lack of cyclical understanding of the world that there are times of peak and times of, you know, the trough and, and that's okay, that rest is important. Everything that you said is so true and... I think creativity is a key part of that because maybe it's worth creating something great in your shed in the backyard or with a couple of people that you know and or whatever it might be and then selling that and it's great quality, it's unique and then you don't have to buy 30 pairs of shoes this year from China or Pakistan or whatever. It, we'd have one great, awesome, unique pair of something that has a story and does the job well and we know where it came from and it's ethical and all of those things and, and how do we embrace that and but you did say that there are movements of slow food and and people that want to shop local and in bulk of stuff that's in season you know i was shopping at garlic and i said oh australian garlic and i'm like it must be garlic season you know it's normally from somewhere else maybe maybe we pickle garlic while it's in season and then don't have to buy it from around the world and where it's shipped at extraordinary prices maybe we don't need quinoa in that month or ever maybe we've got something that we can grow it's an indigenous product that maybe we can see, you know, all of these things. Anyway, I'm rambling. I want to hear more from you. Um, <laughs> no, I, t- I totally agree with you. I, I do think it's important too to preface all this by saying that nobody is perfect and that, and I think I've struggled with this too, that this idea that all these things and I should always be shopping organic and local and everything I do must be made from here and I shouldn't buy that thing and buy that thing and, and, we're all products of the culture and the society we're living in. So I think when we do, you know, end up in consumerism and buying lots of things that we maybe don't need, it's also about being kind to ourselves and understanding that it doesn't have to be perfect, that good enough is good enough and trying. We just Mm. need lots of people who are trying imperfectly, you know, who are trying to bring their bags to the supermarket and occasionally shopping in bulk and growing some tomatoes in their backyard and, being kind to ourselves about it I think is important too. Otherwise what can happen too is the pendulum swings. If you try and be perfect with it all, you can throw it all away because you can think, well, bloody haven't done it today, have I? So I may as well not do it at all and and give up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a key point because it's that success idea again. It's just like being mindful and just being like, Mm. will this make me happy? Maybe not, but it's what I need right now. And, and why? And, and maybe we can move on to you being a parent and, and cha- you know, all the changes that have come along with that because I'm a new parent and I've yeah. seen, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, what changes, I guess, so that what have you found that changes? And also it just makes this perfect life impossible because you've got, in your case, two children to look <laughs> after and, and a family and, and everything that you're trying to balance. So... We can't be perfect in that way. Our priorities change and what we can do changes. What have you found to be, I guess, your um, 
awakenings and your moments of clarity on this journey of parenthood? Whoa, that's such a big one. What have been my awake? So I have two kids. I have one who's five and one who's just turned one. And they're both so different. And that in itself is kind of a joy. One of the learnings I've realised is that I think we can have this idea that we'll have kids and then it's our job to shape them into someone out into someone. And often I've realized a good friend of mine said it's more about guiding them in a direction and kind of like nudging and and helping, but it's not your job to create them as a person because they come fully formed with their fully formed personality already there. And I've seen that from the minute, even the way my kids came into the world were both so different and very indicative of their personality, which I find really interesting. Also Glennon Doyle and another really good friend of mine, um, Flick, who's a play therapist, talks about approaching parenting with curiosity rather than expectations. And I'm trying and I don't always get this right. Believe you me, I still yell at my kids sometimes and get super frustrated and nobody is perfect. And I think it's important for kids to actually see that too, to see you out loud processing your emotions that you can be imperfect, apologise, get angry, but learn learn how to apologise when you're angry and that in the moment the way that you handle that anger, I think it's really important that kids kind of see that too. But, yeah, being curious about who they are and then putting things in front of them and saying, is this something that you're into? And if they're not, that's okay. You know, I think a lot of parenting is also about really looking close up at your own childhood and as they get older and as you become a parent for longer, it really can become quite confronting because you're almost re-experiencing your childhood through their eyes and some of the things that, you know, behaviours that you do as an adult and patterns of ha- and habits you suddenly see, can see in your child or you start to question why it is that you behave that way and often it's then trying to understand the way that you were parented. I mean, Oprah has a really brilliant podcast with, I think his name is Dr. Robert Perry, and they're looking at the, the broad topic, what happened to you? And I find that phrase quite difficult but also super interesting and vital because I think rather than look talking about mental health as a clinical thing which they also are looking at as well it's about looking at what happened to you and your story and why you now show the things that you do and I think as a teacher that's really powerful to to look at that child that's really um, having difficulties in the classroom and thinking what happened to you what is it in your childhood in your life that is now manifesting in this way and I find that it's, it's, it means that you have to be really vulnerable, really honest with yourself and possibly deal with your own traumas and things that have happened that have been really difficult in your life. But that's the thing with parenting. It's a, it brings all this stuff up and I think it is almost like a calling for us to deal with our own stuff <laughs> so that we can help our kids deal with their stuff, you know. So that's the biggest challenge. And, and try not to live in a judgmental headspace because I think we can a lot and I'm, I can do that too. I think human beings often like to live in a judgment of others headspace and a comparison headspace so that we don't have to examine ourselves and be present. It's much easier to just spend our whole lives blaming others for different behaviours or blaming our own parents or whatever rather than really reflecting deeply about 
ourselves and what we need, what we can do to move forward in a constructive way. So yeah, that's that's been the biggest learning for me as a parent. I think the other part of it is that I think motherhood, particularly in fatherhood, have still in in our culture very prescriptive roles, and sometimes the expectations on parents, on mothers and fathers, a fathers to go back to work straight away after they have kids and to not have it impact their life at all. And in fact, it often means they go up the career ladder because they're a family man, all of that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily think is serving men as well as it could be. And I think for women, there's some really big barriers in our way once we become mothers too, because of the way that culture views us still, even though things are changing a little, really they're not changing very much. And the perception that as a mother, you will then no longer care about your career or won't show up and that it's you're expected to do the bulk of the parenting and the housework still. I think it can work. It, it just, I think it's not that there aren't women who want to do that and men who want to go back to work straight away and that works for some families but I think it's about having um, equal opportunity to it and having workplaces that are accommodating. So if you're a dad that wants to be at home with your daughter more two or three days a week and share the parenting and be really present. There's a lot of research Annabelle Crabb talks about the more that both parents can be there from the very beginning because a woman isn't born and suddenly knows how to change a nappy. It's just that if you if you are the parent that does it more, you'll be better at it. And then over time, it's easier. If you're the one that's always done it, you just do it because it's quicker. And then that one parent is more skilled at one thing than the, than the other parent so trying to get that more equal, I think, will then also be easier for others. So that's been an eye-opener because I think before I had kids, I thought things were equal and fine. <laughs> and uh, once I became a mother, I realised maybe not so much. Yeah. But also I think the last thing I'd say is that I'm so very, very grateful for James because he's such a great dad and such an equal partner and so respectful and wants to build me up and lift me up and listen and be an equal kind of partner in terms of housework. But also he's a really present dad and really is trying his best. And so I'm very lucky to have him around to do it with me because God knows it's a, it's one of the hardest jobs you'll ever have, I reckon. How have you found it? Yeah. Oh, no, thank you for sharing. It's, it's, um, yeah, you made me think of so much. I don't. I didn't want to go back to work, but I had to. I definitely didn't want Lauren to have to go back to work because she is breastfeeding for one, but also had she gave birth. I mean, that as a male, no matter how that is done, no matter through any any of the multitude of circumstances you can give birth or, or not give birth, because so many people struggle with not being able to be mothers. You know, too looking at women. Now, it's changed my perspective. I've always been fairly open, I thought, and, you know, a, a guy that's not sexist or whatever, but I obviously was by accident <laughs> by the, um, because I thought, ah, it can't be that hard or bad or whatever. But it was if men were the ones that had to give birth, we would no longer be doing it. <laughs> There'd be another way. <laughs> There'd be a pod. There'd so you put something. a baby in a pod. There'd be an invention. In the room. I, I, I don't. Um, or obviously, maybe then the mindsets would have changed between genders. But it's just such a crazy thing. So to expect someone to, but then also to ice be isolated fairly quickly as well. It's hard to. You might have a mother's group once a week or a, 
family member that comes over or something, but it is quite an isolating yeah. role, especially at night time or those moments where there's no one around and, and yeah, so I was lucky. I'm really lucky compared to most people. Six weeks at home because of holidays. Oh, summertime. Beautiful. Great. I also asked for four days to go down to four days instead of five. Fantastic as well. And I also sort of stepped back from a couple of roles that would have meant a few extra hours and I was allowed to do that. I don't think I repaid the favour because I've since then just having a COVID year last year, spending so much time with Lauren but also on my own things, meditating, writing, thinking about things and then having to be jump back into work with a school system that has struggled to cope with what COVID's done as well as having a baby at home and having a partner at home that I want to be there for and with and, and share in. That's been hard as a dad, but I do find it that I have to be present when I do get home. But then I also want to do all the jobs because I'm like, she doesn't, she shouldn't have to do that. And I'm very, my mum's made me very domesticated as well as my dad by doing so many jobs. So I'm a, a chores guy. I'm, I'm a get everything, I do the washing, the dishes, everything when I can, which is a lot because I want to and I try to. And um, I know I'm ran, rambling, but all of this makes it very difficult to just do what you want, which is be part of that village and, and building that family. And and I'm more lucky than most. I can't imagine having to go back with a week of paternity leave or no paternity leave or because you're a casual worker or a worker that's unable to engage. I, I just couldn't do it. And then as a mother, watching Lauren go through everything she does is incredible too um, and, and seeing someone like you and, and all other all other mothers have, you know, their own journey and their own story. You just want to delve into that and be like, wow. Like it's it's mystifying <laughs> um, because we're not in the village context anymore with, you know, 30 mothers sitting around and helping each other and, mm. and getting back into what was what it was all about. Like your previous life is a shift. I think a woman's life changes forever in almost every way, whereas a man can if they want to go back to the life that they had without much need to change. And that's the freedom of choice. It's not that it's easier or harder. It's just that freedom of choice and freedom to, yeah, the, the, I, I have an opportunity to go back five days and work really hard and go wherever. And I don't think even if Lauren wanted to, she'd have it in the nagging in the back of her head that she's got this child that came out of her that she nurtured for nine months and and then through this stage that relies on her for everything as well. It would just be so hard. Yeah, so it's a it's a journey. And that what happened to you thing, like to go back there, I don't know, we're talking about this now. Was this talked about in our parents' generation? Don't no, definitely not. No. This this kind of research I think is particularly new as well in that framework of looking at not just from a clinical perspective what someone's diagnosed with, whether it's, I don't know, ADHD like or, you know, depression or, you know, all those things which obviously are clinical diagnoses, but also looking with just as much depth at, at what happened to you in your life to impact your ability to cope, to ability to process trauma, to be present in the world. And I think the conversation, I really recommend that episode with Brene Brown. It's on her podcast, Unlocking Us. Unlocking Us. It, it's such an interesting area of research now because they talk about the privilege of having stability and building resilience. So if you're, so it's not even just that you're privileged in terms of wealth and in terms of a loving family. It's also that that 
loving, stable family with parents who are um, calm most of the time where home is predictable, where your home is safe and you feel protected, just that privilege alone, that's not to do necessarily with wealth, so that does help. But having somewhere that feels safe and loving and and you feel protected enables you to then develop resilience when small traumas happen to you in your life over time, even just things like being left out of games when you're a child and that most of, our, you know, the way our brains work uh, develop between the age of zero and six, right? We know that, that generally that's the, the biggest part of brain development and so those years are so precious in the way that kids start to build their ability to trust the outside world, their understanding of themselves in relation to others, and so their ability to then be vulnerable. And we talk about all this language around vulnerability now, and I hadn't even thought about this before, that my ability to be vulnerable is kind of contingent on my previous experience of not being attacked, you know, and and hurt in some way because some people do present in their lives with these big walls up and they're very, I'd say, antagonistic and very private. And asking someone, particularly if you've come from a background where racism has been a factor or where there's been significant childhood trauma, you weren't safe. And so you built coping mechanisms at that time to keep you safe. And so as an adult, then saying to you, well, no, take away all those coping mechanisms, tell us how you really feel when you've built those to keep yourself, you know, okay, is really, really challenging. And so there's research to show that being successful in life and being able to study and then go on to a university degree or, you know, be successful in your field of choice, have loving relationships, which we know really do impact the way that someone is able to move through the world successfully. I mean, for me, I think having deep connections with people and having deep friendships and people you can rely on is actually a huge indicator of success, of a successful life, more so than anything else. I think we're living in a loneliness epidemic, which is another thing you talk about with all of this. And so having that, I think, builds a successful life over, you know, monetary things. And if you've got barriers to do that, before you even start because of your previous experiences. I just find that really, really interesting, really heartbreaking. And also then I think once you understand that enables you to enter in with more empathy, you know, in life in general. So you can build that empathy, which we talked about before, is that, that I think helps culturally, you know, helps us understand more and, and build maybe build a better community because really I think we're designed to live in communities and some of this technology and I mean COVID as well, one of the hardest things about that was that in some ways it really tore down some of our community because you became quite fearful of seeing anyone and in other ways it built our community strength up because you are sort of confined to your 5Ks or whatever Mm. we went through when we lived in Melbourne. So I don't know how we got there but, yeah, that's what I just found that episode particularly really interesting and this new kind of research um, I think so important. It just makes so much sense, doesn't it? Yes, and that ability to act with empathy once you understand that. One of the biggest things was it holds up almost a mirror to your childhood but also the parent, your parents um, mm. when you become a parent. And we found that for sure. And a lot everyone I talk to actually finds that. And it, and it is interesting but it's interesting that we say, oh, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to do that and I don't like the way they're doing that 
Or even why didn't they act like that when I was a kid? Now that they've got grandchildren, they do this, but not with me. But it is the coping mechanisms. It is the ability to change, you know, the pressure that parents may have been under or their mindset or whatever they were taught was right. And their own parents too. And their own parents no. too. And we got to yeah. remember that those parents grew up in a very different time. It was only two generations ago was a world that was very different and maybe – less stable in some ways, although we're seeing change and rapid yeah. change. So, um, you know, there may not be conflict within Melbourne right now, you know, war or people getting sent off all the time and stuff, but there is this these uncertainties that are coming. So we are unstable as a society. How can we make our homes more stable is a, a question. You said you earlier in the conversation that you – always felt you just had to do what was right, tick all the boxes and everything would just plot along. Was that something that you were born into? Was that something that you were told to, to be like or, or saw the, the influences around you, your parents and people in your life that made you think that you had to do that? It's really interesting because no in some ways. I mean my dad worked for himself who was a writer um, and a consultant and ethicist and I grew up in a very conservative Catholic family and – we always felt really loved in our family. I think my mum and dad did their very best and they they also came from difficult childhoods too, I think. So they brought those experiences with them and I don't think our family was a family that was very good at expressing emotions necessarily but our parents were really um, into academics, both of them. My mum's a doctor and and so in our family I think to feel affection and approval was never actually explicitly said to us, but the most love and affection we felt from our parents, I think, was when we were achieving. And so all of my siblings are achieving, are achieving kind of people, you know, like we we are always, and I think at school that re- that was reflected in our grades generally. And so I think that was the mindset that I kind of grew up in, this idea that you you try your very best, you get it as perfect as you possibly can and then you get it better than that. You know, like an A wasn't really good enough. Not that it was explicitly said but there was this kind of implication that you've got to, you know, get – we come from a family of people that do really well at school, you know, and that's where you should be striving. But at the same time my parents were really into music and art and, and a lot of literature particularly. So I grew up in a family where we just read constantly all the time we're constantly arguing ideas constantly examining the way we thought about things constantly questioning things and you know my father had very specific ideas about ethics and I didn't agree with all of his opinions but he always was very interested in us debating robustly even though he would I think he always hoped that we landed on the same way of thinking as he did but he really examined everything he did and I think my mother is the same and they, they live a very well-examined life. And so the choices that my mum and dad made were really informed a lot by their deep faith and their deep um, Catholic belief system and also in that idea of achieving. And, and I think partly maybe my father too from how he grew up, that was part of something that he took away that he needed to prove himself in some way, I guess. And so my parents were, are very hard on themselves too work extremely hard and really believe in doing the best you can for others as well. 
and being there for others. There was a really strong theme of being a person for others in our house and social justice was a huge theme growing up and trying your very best because of their deep faith in God too, I think, um, and in the way that they saw the world. Yeah, so it was quite a serious household in lots of ways, which I'm quite a silly person. I like, and I'm very big. I have lots of big emotions. I'm very loud. I sing a lot. I'm very theatrical and ridiculous. And so I find, I found that in some ways quite challenging as a, as a kid because I'm so, and my daughter is quite the same. She's very loud and out there with their emotions and, you know, quite sort of big. And that was very different, I think, from my parents. So I, I, I found that growing up really hard to navigate because I had all these feelings I wanted to talk about, but everyone was not like that in my family. And like, I, you know, so I think James and I have parented differently because of that. We're both very silly and we do a lot of singing and we have a lot of music and we tell a lot of jokes and we make fun of each other a lot. And for me, that feels like something that I didn't grow up with that I really value but also I love some of the other things that I did, that I grew up with about that social justice, really examining the choices you make in your life. Um, and my dad really sort of taught us to, to walk your own way. So it's kind of interesting that I did just follow, fall into those, you know, go to school, go to high, you, you know, university, tick all the boxes. And I think, but I think part of that was maybe that achieving thing and the, and the, it's e- and it's actually easier. I think I was full of quite a lot of fear, and it's easier to do those things in my head anyway because of the. I'm naturally quite good at that kind of schooling where you ask questions or you sit and listen, then you write things down. I'm quite good at that, so it was easier to do that because having to go outside of that and going against those, those cultural norms is a lot harder. It takes a lot more guts, I think. So it was easier for me to follow that path. I've noticed in that that creativity, your your purpose to help others be creative. I'm no psychologist, but could it have come <laughs> from maybe feeling that was stifled at times? Because, but you are. Or in saying that, you did you were involved in sort of the theatrical side of things and the singing yeah. and the music. So yeah, it was still embraced. And the fact that you have different ideas from, I guess, your dad or your parents, meant that that was an open and valid thing you were enabled to do that even though he wished you jumped on his side sometimes the debate was there it wasn't a don't talk to me do it or nothing it was have your opinions form them and argue them well and and that has also defined you in a way you you, you're so caring but also you love talking about ideas too so you've got the creativity and the joking that was still fostered in a way because it's Mm. there and then ideas yeah i wonder it's just interesting to to look at someone and, <laughs> and their story and what happens to you. So the values you've taken up of social justice obviously live through and I hear you on your podcast at the moment, Suggestible, oftentimes it is a place where you, you have a lot of banter, a lot of jokes, a lot of um, silliness and fun, but then you're also suggesting lots of provocative um, <laughs> or not controversial but things that matter and, and things that are close to your heart too, especially around women's rights and, and you know, the system as it is. Mm. What, what's something you're really focusing on now? Is it around the two sections I've sort of heard, which is about women and vulnerability and, and motherhood, I guess? Is that an area that you're just really focused on right now? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think that's something that I've become more and more aware of. Maybe it's about having a daughter too. But I think it's also seeing the stories of my friends around me too and then the broader story in the media that's been playing out around me. Maybe as well because I grew up, I went to an all-girls school and I went into teaching which was very female-dominated. So I saw p- women in positions of leadership all around me and never really felt that kind of pressure from anywhere um, and I and felt that things were quite equal. I didn't ever feel discriminated against because of my gender. And so I just never really saw it. Was, it's a bit like seeing the matrix, you know, is that I never saw the matrix until friends got older and I saw people around me's stories and then I became a mother and I saw the kind of difficulties that present themselves once you do become a mother and how vulnerable women can become. I've also watched a lot of my friends struggle with particular health challenges that aren't as well researched and well funded as many of the conditions that also affect men, like for example, endometriosis and issues to do with our hormone cycles and our periods. I feel like there's a lot of gaps in that knowledge. And my mum actually does quite a lot of work in the natural fertility space and is quite interested in this area too. So I think I grew up with that kind of understanding of womanhood and our bodies but I just feel like there's so much more that could be explored around that. And I think part of it, which I've come to understand more recently, which sounds so obvious, is just that men have been writing the narrative for so long that there are just less things being written and made by women. Men have dominated the medical industry for a very long time. You know, things are obviously changing in that space completely, but often they've dominated the research as well for a lot of reasons, one of which is the practicality of a woman being at home, raising kids, not being able to then spend their whole life, you know, doing their 10,000 hours in a particular subject area. And then also the stories of women who have achieved really amazing things not being talked about because women aren't necessarily writing the stories or men are writing the stories. And I think that that is obviously you could compare that to the story of Indigenous Australia too or of different types of minorities, you know, history is written by the winners, right? And in a way that is kind of how I've started to see some of the stories and content that are coming out. I think there's just incredibly brilliant um, female writers and creators too who've made incredible things, make incredible art and music, Um, but it does feel like it's not changing fast enough. And I started to see that matrix after becoming a mother and stepping into a different field. You know, I walked into media, which is a totally different field and comedy, which is also very dominated by men still, which was such an eye-opening experience for me because I'd never been in those fields before. And I kind of walked in not knowing that there was some other gender kind of issue running through and having experiences where people would speak to me in a certain way and me being a little bit puzzled by it and now in hindsight understanding it was because of my gender whereas you know I just hadn't ever experienced that before or really thought about it and then also I think you reflect back on experiences in your life when you're a younger woman and understanding now that at the time it seemed strange but you didn't understand what the big deal was and over time you realize oh no was a big deal and there are reasons why things happen the way they did. So yeah, to answer your question, I I guess that's what I'm my new project is sort of looking at a lot too around these kind of issues around, around 
women and our role in society and the way we're portrayed um, and vulnerability and culture, all of that stuff. Your new project. Yeah, so I'm currently making a, a podcast. Uh, it's still in early stages. So I'm still, I'm not, I haven't completely nailed down the concept, but it is around sort of women and vulnerability and portrayal of women, I guess, through the media and looking at the world through that particular lens. As everything that I make, I just, I need to put my own inner critic aside sometimes. My friend suggested I have a few glasses of wine or something because <laughs> it's really, I find that so challenging that I like being, having to critique your own work and then actually putting it out there means you really have to be super vulnerable with it. And I think because this isn't about interviewing people about making something, which I love doing, this is even more personal because it's about my own experiences in the world, but also I think it's such an important issue. I want to do it justice. So anyway, have to have to take my own advice. I think go back and listen to some of my own episodes and just make the thing and just put it out there and uh, hope for the best with it. When you when you talk about that, I know it's a work in progress. Is it going to be about experts in the field, or is it just about revealing stories with people and, and sharing stories? What are you thinking? Yeah, I'm still in. I'm in a tussle with that. Mm. I'm in a real tussle. I think it might be a bit of both. I think story is often much more powerful than anything else. And I, I mean, I love listening. Like I love Jack Shepard's Armchair Expert and and shows that, or with Brene Brown, where they talk to experts. I think that you learn so much. But I also think that there is so much power in story and human story. And I think we respond more to story from a micro level because it builds empathy and understanding yeah. than necessarily just through listening to an expert. Yeah. So the, the, the best podcasts, I think, are the ones where you get an expert who also has a great story, mm. you know. If you have someone who can do both, then that's brilliant. Yeah, I'm still kind of messing around with the format. I'm trying to live, like Elizabeth Gibbert would say, in the creative fun space where you're just doing a dance with your creativity because yeah. she sees her creativity as a person. So I'm trying to be much more in the like, let's dance, let's see what happens, rather than tortured kind of like everything's the worst and I hate myself and I hate everything I make and I'm stuck in that inertia headspace. So I'm really trying to just not take it so seriously. But, yeah, I don't know. I had a really terrible day with it a couple of days ago where I just was looking at the whole thing and thinking it just needs to all go in the bin. <laughs> just restart. I don't know. Do you still – do you struggle still with that kind of perfectionism or are you much – Oh, you know, yeah, even through this I'm just saying I'm talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> this is about Claire. But because I'm enjoying – I mean I enjoy all my conversations but sometimes I don't – if I don't know the person I've got really – I feel I've got much better at just getting to the crux of what I want to – ask and mm. condense it into a short time. But I've also, we've been meaning to have conversations for a while now, you and I, about yeah. lots of different things. So it's good to be able to have that as a conversation as well. And I think it's it's worked well. It's just do people have um, however X amount of time to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the which, thing, and, and then it? is it about as many, you know, ears on in headphones as it, as it can or is it about me growing? That's another thing I, I try to think about in what I do, what is the, the purpose, what is the motive? Uh, obviously it's great when lots of people listen and give you feedback and want more, but then it's also feeling revitalised at the end of it and that's what I do feel. And that when that stops I'll, I'll probably stop. But I do feel revitalised, even this. before On the way here I was a bit 
lethargic and then now I'm full of energy again. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's been good for me and that's maybe the, the best part and hopefully for you too. Definitely. Uh, and then yeah. everyone else, hope, you know, will feed off that maybe. Totally, yeah. But, yeah, what was it that if you had advice for someone or could give a little lesson about someone that has had a similar journey where, you know, they didn't realise this disparity between men and women or race or sexual orientation or whatever it might be, and then all of a sudden you're in a field where this has popped up. What what would you say helped you along the way? Oh, that's a big question. Staying true to just being yourself regardless of what anyone else in the room thinks of you. I think about there was one time I did a podcast where I was the only woman in the room and I know this happens for women all the time but it was the first time it had ever happened to me. I just, you know, like I have mates who are guys and I I love talking to all different people but it just happened to be it was me and like three other comedians who were blokes and it just had not ever occurred to me that I would feel uncomfortable in that setting because I hang around guys all the time and it's fine. But there was something about the performative nature of having to be on a podcast and the energy in the room where you're the only person who is different and coming at issues from a different perspective and having maybe a slightly different sensibility in terms of humour and what's funny. And I realised I had to make a choice about trying to fit in with the culture of that blokey, blokey vibe, being the come on, boys, stick to the street and narrow, which is often the trope that women fall into, particularly on the radio. You know, it's often that kind of like two guys who get to be the larrikins and the woman has to be like, oh, you know, oh, Dave or whatever and like sighing, you know, oh, God, they're so silly, you know, that kind of vibe. And I realised that I just had to make a choice about how I was going to be and I don't know if it worked but I just decided, no, I'm just going to be myself and I'm going to say what I think. And I'm not going to get it right all the time. And maybe sometimes they, the people in that room won't find it funny or interesting or, or they won't be on the same page. It happened again. I was at, cause I was all, I've also been working in advertising obviously with this job, which is another flip side of media. And I went to a meeting where I was the only woman at a pub and we'd met in a pub, which seems to be a vibe with some advertising guys. I just drink a lot. I didn't realize that. And they meet, They booked the business meeting in a pub. So I got to the pub, sitting around a table and the guys just started, one of them saw one of their mates who came over to the table and I was having heaps of fun. Like I can keep up with a group of people having a few beers. No worries. That's fun. Uh, but teaching was never really like that. And then they saw one of their buddies who came over to the table and then it was like six, five o'clock and he's like, oh, I'm definitely having another one of these beers, going to miss out on bed and bath time by the time I get home. Brilliant. And they all like high-fived each other. And I sat there and I didn't say anything. I just kind of drank my beer and quietly thought, you're a total asshole. But I didn't. I thought, who's that person, most likely a woman, who's your wife, who's at home with however many kids? And you've decided to have a beer so that you don't have to do bed and bath time. And as a parent, you know, that's like the hardest time of the day. And I just saw this tiny window into a world that I'd never considered before. Maybe also because I have a partner who's not like that. And the kind of self-belief that that's totally fine and that lack of empathy and that maybe the lack of expectation that you should be there for your kids and you should try and be there for your partner and I don't know, maybe it was bravado and he was just joking, but it felt like a very commonplace setting that I'd seen a window into. 
and I didn't say anything and sometimes I wish that I had. But maybe it's also about, yeah, backing yourself, being yourself, but also not letting it change you. Observe it and then think about ways to subtly change that culture or make them make them think slightly differently. I wonder there's, there's psychology of men that we need to be called out sometimes but not – but then there's also a, an empathy that I constantly try to remember with anything, with racism even. It's horrible. It's disgusting. It's disturbing. But what's led to that? Like yeah. what – What's happened What's to you? What's happened? Why do you think that's okay? Why do you yeah. think that why is that needed? What what are you hiding about yourself or whatever? Like and same with that misogynistic comments, really, or, or anti-family, or whatever it might be, you know, she'll be right or whatever. It, and what's the messaging? I don't know what the messaging that communication of ideas would be something to to explore, which you're thinking about with story versus expertise versus yeah. whatever. What is going to have the biggest impact on people when they listen to it? And I, I think it actually comes to hearing a story and reflecting. Like maybe I felt that I reflected on your story, not because you told said it was wrong or right or, oh, I saw when you did it, Matt. It was, oh, that seems pretty horrible when you hear it from, from another point of view. I, w- I won't say that anymore. Even I wasn't told to not say it. I, I, you know, you didn't yeah. know that. And may, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm using myself as this example of, yeah, of yeah. Or whatever. But, but it's like seeing yourself reflected yeah. back in a story yeah. and maybe seeing it from a different angle. Mm. And it's not that necessarily that that bloke who said that is a bad guy and I, even a bad father. I mean, he could very well be and probably is a really nice guy and a very good dad. But there's something about that culture, yeah. maybe that idea of the after work drinks at five mm. o'clock that's embedded somewhere yep. in the psyche and that idea that there aren't any other women around. If the table had been three mothers or not even just three mothers but three women of different backgrounds with two blokes, would the conversation have been the same? And maybe I don't think women have that ca- like in that same way necessarily. Would he have said it? Would the culture still be there? You know, and then... I don't know. I think, it, yeah, it just opens up a new way of thinking, yeah. doesn't it? And it's not about saying you're right. It shouldn't just be – it shouldn't be about judging necessarily, but it should be about building empathy and reflecting on why we say the things we do and what's happened to us to yeah. make us say the things we do and does it serve us really in the long run. Because yeah. we all need to blow off steam and have a few beers. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're not allowed to go out after work and women want to do that too and have a few drinks, but how we – yeah, approach. I'll be mindful right. once again, isn't it? But yeah. if, if you could hear yourself back and you're embarrassed by that or you had your partner in within distance of listening or your child or whatever, yeah. how would you feel? And if it's not good, <laughs> then maybe don't do it. That's, yeah. that's what it is. And then oftentimes when you, you mentioned it right at the start, that defensive, that wall, that abrasiveness, it's like, mm. oh, I'll start a fight with you now because you heard me when I didn't want you to hear me. And it's like that's the cycle of society today. And and in many ways we've gone from, you know, the personal to the external a lot and, you know, (laughs) weaved our way through it. But it just seems like a bit of a link. What's happened to you? What are your coping mechanisms and how? And and just having empathy at the end of the day is super important. I did a little rant at the start of my previous podcast about empathy and – 
love and kindness and, and that needs to be at the basis of everything um, because, you know, you can argue about politics, religion, sport, this and, and it all that means nothing unless we're kind. And I guess sometimes we argue about all those things because we want a better world. Isn't that the purpose? We may have a warped opinion of what a better world looks like. Some people may. But it's about wanting everyone to be better off hopefully and and that's where we need to lead towards. And I know you're really, really pushing for that. I actually wanted to touch on and we don't have much time but I, I might just talk. I, I know you've done so many great things. You've been really deeply involved in volunteering in the past, in, in travel and being a part of using your teaching and your expertise to go to northern WA but you also spent time in Africa and – could you comment just on a, on a couple of your favourite memories of some of those things that you've done that really have made you feel proud, confident, comfortable, or or they may have been like, I thought this would be a life-changing thing and it ended up being a, just a another issue I found, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so I guess you, you mentioned Africa. So James and I went to teach for six months in a community just outside of the slums of Arusha which is like a tourist town in Tanzania. So we lived in like a rural community there in a village. And one of the biggest lessons I learned from that was that I got I got much more out of that experience than the kids around me did that I was there to teach. <laughs> and I think that happens a lot with community work, that you think that you're going there to change the world, which is what I thought at the time. I was pretty naive and, you know, kind of turning up there thinking I was there for the kids. But in the end of the day, they taught me much more about um, the world and about myself than I ever taught them. But I do think I learnt from that experience that we had no running water for six months and, you know, we when we did get water, the water was diverted at 3 o'clock in the morning for like six hours or something to our house and we'd if we heard it dripping, we'd have to go and turn the taps on to capture as much water as we could. So that made me think a lot about resources and how lucky we are here and you know, turning the tap on for clean water and how lucky that makes us. But that experience, one of the things I realised from there was that when you go into a community, and I think Melinda Gates said this really well in um, a podcast I listened to her interviewed on, you have to go into a community and I think it's the same with the classroom and with kids and people thinking that they're a full cup or, you know, and that you are there to then add to that. You're not, they're not empty cups where you think you need to fill them up and that they have so many life experiences and things that, you know, their culture is so rich. Just because maybe they're not rich in resources doesn't mean they're not rich in other ways and that if you go in thinking that just putting in your Western ideas or your Western way of being into a community will help things, you won't end up helping. For example, our school got donated a whole lot of computer laptops except that we didn't have any internet. So, like, what was the point of them, you know, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. And also you have to be really careful with aid work too. We had a little boy live next door to us um, who was part of a program where they choose one child in a family to give through World Vision to give rice to and donate food to and everything. He had five other siblings that lived in the house with him and even though this program was trying to do the right thing and it was awesome and, you know, he felt really special, he got a special uniform, got, went to a special school, it meant that the other five kids in the family got didn't get anything 
And that social dynamic in that family meant that he would turn up to our house and just be like, "Mm, Claire, can I have your guitar? (laughs) Can I have your laptop? Can I have that? Because he'd just seen, he'd learnt as a six-year-old that white people give you stuff. Mm. So there's, I think there's always complexity in every situation you're in. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that was really such an eye-opening thing that just those kids made me laugh so much and they were so clever and funny. And one of my favourite memories was a day, and it just reminded me of how kids are all different. So the schooling system in Tanzania is very prescriptive and very rote. So it's fear-based and you memorise stuff and you regurgitate it in your exams and you do not ask a question, you do not talk back to your teacher, that's it. And if you don't write the exact question down when a question is written in the exam, in the exact wording, you get it wrong, even if the answer's right. You have to memorise it from the textbook. So it's like massively opposite to our education system. So we had we taught English as a second language in this program. It meant that we needed to get the kids talking. And so it took us a couple of weeks to encourage them to put their hands up and start talking and start being getting out there. And, and there was one boy in particular who didn't speak a lot of English um, but he was really funny, I could tell, because he'd be making all the other kids laugh in Swahili on the playground. But when he was in class, he wouldn't say anything because his English wasn't very good. But over time, I just we just got to know these kids so well. He drew, he was really creative. And so his writing wasn't very good. And in terms of academics, he wasn't very great. But he drew me a cartoon and left it on my desk. And it was a picture of a teacher yelling with a cane up in the air with a thought bubble that had money drawn in it. And he was sitting there on the floor in front of him with this like look on his face, like with his hand up, but not able to answer a question. And it was basically saying the, the teachers are here for money and they'll hit us with a cane rather than let us answer a question, which like kind of blew me away. And then we had a talent show at the end of the term and he got up and did a rap and It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen and we had kids from all the other classes hearing it and suddenly we had a room of like 100 kids just like hanging because they didn't have glass on the windows, they were metal bars. You'd have kids just hanging out of the windows just staring at this kid who like basically raised the roof of our classroom. And it, I just get get teary thinking about it because I think about him and the choices and opportunities that are available to a kid like that who is like really visually creative and really musically talented. And I just, I often wonder where he is now and what he's doing. And I think that's sort of like that ability to think in a different way is so undervalued in a schooling system, in our schooling system sometimes, let alone in a rural community in Tanzania, you know. But then again he'd been able to bring this whole community of kids together and at the end of the day, isn't that more important than whether or not you can, I don't know, record it all and put it on Spotify and get a hundred downloads, you know, thousands of downloads, you know? Mm. I don't know. I don't know. That's a bit of a rambling story. It doesn't have a real point to it. But I just, that was probably one of my favourite memories from that time. That was that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Where can people follow you, Claire, now? <laughs> what can they do to find out more about you or to listen to you each week? What, what, 
where is the best place to find oh, you? That is such a good question. All right. So I'm on Instagram at Claire Twenty. Um, I sometimes share on there. I'm I'm not great with social media, but if when I do tell stories, I tell them there. Uh, and I have a newsletter that comes out once a week on a Friday, which I have to finish today actually. It's called Tonts, T-O-N-T-S, um, and you can subscribe in the link in my bio on Instagram. I also do a podcast called Suggestible with my said husband I've talked a bit about on this show called James. Clement um, and that comes out every Thursday and the link to my newsletter is there in the show notes for that show as well and that's a review podcast where we just recommend you books and Netflix shows and recipes and have a bit of a laugh and a bit of a joke so yeah. You've already shared many moments of clarity today but my final question every episode is to share a moment of clarity that you've had recently. Can you enlighten us with one today? So there was a moment I was with my son and I was really arguing with him this week about how to get him to put his uniform on in the morning. We had this massive battle every morning and I get angry, then he gets angry, then I get angry, then he gets angry. And I was punishing him for things like taking things away and being really, you know, angry. And then I realised that I was contributing to it and I flipped it. And so instead of taking things away and punishing him, and I let it just be. And I just put his uniform and socks and shoes there and said, we, we need to go and you need to get dressed. And I'll be really proud when you're standing at the door ready to go. And I got myself ready. I packed his lunch. I did all the things I needed to do. And he got ready eventually. And then we left. And he didn't do it in my time frame. And I wanted him to do it earlier. But he did it and we ended up without an argument and it just made me realise that sometimes you have to give people space to do things when they're ready, which isn't always the way in parenting because you need to be out the door. But, you know, that in that moment it reminded me that sometimes you contribute a lot to a situation becoming more difficult for yourself by the way that you approach it. You know, and if you can be more present in the moment and stop and reflect on how your behaviour is contributing because sometimes people mirror back to you the behaviour that you are acting out, you know, and so and particularly in parenting I think that happens a lot. So, yeah, it's made me trying, try to think more carefully about the energy that I bring to our mornings <laughs> and I'm sure next week I'll be yelling again, get your shoes on. But, um, you know, that, that was something that was very clear for me this week. Beautiful. Thanks, Claire, for your time. It's been wonderful. I've learned a lot about you. I've known you for a while but learned so much more and you've, you've always been a wonderful uh, human being. Oh, uh, thanks, Matt. That, that I've looked up to. But this has made it even uh, more powerful and, and, and obvious to me. So so thank you for your time. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you. So thanks for interviewing me. I had a lovely time. You're great. You did a great job. It was awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. If you enjoyed the conversation today, Please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe would be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me 
on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.